Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hello, hello. Good to be here. Good to see you guys. Um, my sponsor was just telling me earlier, he says, well, these are a bunch of friends. They're all pulling for you. So the, you are my friends. You are the fellowship that uh, the Lord has brought me to. Uh, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be anywhere. Uh, anybody that a couple of people here, a few handful of people know my story. I'll cut to the chase on that part on that I just made parole in 2000, excuse me, um, yeah, 2017, October the 20th. Uh, and I've been out of the penitentiary for a little over two years. I'm happy to be here and sexually sober by the grace of God. And only by the grace of God, because I, I tried everything there was that I could find to help myself through my years of struggle, uh, I'll go back to the start for me as a young kid. My first passion in life that I remember when I was three years old was music. I lived in Nashville area. Um, my brother told me when I was about three years old, one of the first memories I have of how to turn the radio on to WMAK and Nashville, the rock and roll station. This would have been about 1955 when I was three years old, and I just, I was enmeshed in music. That was my whole thing. And I started also, as I listened to music, I would sing. <clears throat> and soon my fantasy world became, I'm the lead singer for every band that played. I'm on the Ed Sullivan show, and I'm out front. Do da do da, you know, and so that was. I wanted to be a rock and roll star from the time I was about yay big, you know. That was just that became my whole little fantasy world. Along with that came lust, uh, and that came from being, you know, playing doctor, being guilted and sh- guilted and shamed over that by my mom. She would lose her cool every time I got caught doing something like that. So that became a problem, as we all know, how those problems persist. And then, as a true alcoholic, drug addict, sexaholic, I was also, and am still, a resentaholic. So I started learning how to resent very early on, preschooler, up into my my, uh, elementary school days. There was... 
Well, I had an older brother. He loved to torment me in every way he could, scare me, do everything he could to me. And I started using, I would start having these fantasies about hurting people. And that shocked me. I was brought up in a a, a, a church-going family. Uh, like some people have said, I had a drug problem as a kid. I got drugged to church every Sunday. <laughs> and uh, so I had a moral compass of sorts. I knew, you know, murder is probably not a good idea. You know what I mean? That's, you know, thou shalt not, you know. And so when I would have these ideas as a little kid, I'd see some other little kid that's goofing off and making me mad, I think. I remember in a swimming pool at a lake, actually, in a swimming area. When we were on vacation, some little kid was goofing off and making me mad. And I thought, well, I'll just go over here and push him on down the water until he shuts up, you know. <laughs> and that scared me. I thought, wow, gosh, that's, that's pretty serious there. It's like killing somebody. And I thought, well... What I'll do in my little juvenile mind, I thought, well, if I could have a robot that acted like, talked like, and did like an actual human being, and I could push them down the water, I could run that scenario in my head, and it wouldn't be bad. You know, it wouldn't be a bad thing. I'm just killing a machine, you know. And I kept, as I went on and got older and people would make me mad, I would run through fantasies of what I would do to that person and say, well, I'm not really doing it to them. I'm getting it out of my system, which is a total lie. I was feeding it into my system is what I did. I fed on resentment. Uh, I fed on lust. Uh, I learned a way at an early age, five or six years old, by accident, climbing on a swing set. If I strained myself to almost exhaustion, I would have what would be I would call a uh, pre-adolescent orgasm. About five or six years old, I thought, whoa, that's the coolest thing ever. But I also I knew, I didn't go tell, hey, mom and dad, guess what I found out? You know, I can go jump on the swing set and then woo, you know. I knew there was, that was probably shameful, maybe not good, not something I ought to advertise. So that became another part of my secret life. I tried to replicate that every chance I got and did, you know, over and over and over as an adult, as pre-adolescent. Well, then, you know, as it all it happens, the hormones kick in. And I went through puberty probably two years younger than most people my age did. My dad had done the same thing. He told me about it, you know. So I started maybe about 11 or something like that. And so I became a very obnoxious uh, sex addict, you know, as a kid. In the, by the time I was getting, in about the sixth grade, I was obnoxious. And also I had grown six inches taller than everybody else, and somebody talked fun, funky to me. And I just knock them out, you know. I mean, I had a lot of anger. Uh, and I don't know, I mean, you know, all these problems I had were not because I was abused per se. It's because of the way I dealt with what happened, you know. Uh, and I didn't know how. It, so I had sick thinking. Uh, I went on to start trying to play music and then... Uh, Got in a little garage band with my neighbor next door, and that was that became my life. I said, "This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to be a rock and roll musician. I'm going to play. We're going to get. I'm going to get a record deal. I'm going to be rich and famous." 
That's the way I'm going to be happy. I was looking for all these things to make me happy because I wasn't happy with me. I always felt, never felt like I was good enough. Never. Uh, and so as I started doing that and the hormones that kicked in, the sexual stuff just went worse and worse and worse. I started getting into exhibitionism, voyeurism, uh, obscene phone calling. Uh, I had a girlfriend that we'd had phone sex together. And after that, I thought, well, let's just call everybody, you know. And, you know, <laughs> I'm an addict. What do you do? You like something, you go for it, you know. And sad but true, that's what I kept doing. So I'm now, you know, perpetrating... You know, I'm an ex, and in, in, in essence, a sexual offender. I'm doing things that I can get arrested for. And I did get arrested a couple of times for exhibitionism. Uh, it was a misdemeanor, but it was very, you know, it was very embarrassing and it was very, you know, and humbling. And I tried so hard from the time I was a adolescent on to try to quit doing this stuff. How can I stop this? I mean, I tried and I tried and I tried, and I could not stop and stay stopped. There was no way. Uh, and as I went on, things just got worse. I mean, as Roy talked about us having a real connection, that that our problem is, is we don't have a connection with God. And I didn't. And what I was needing and looking for, uh, was just always outside my grasp. Um, and so, the way things went, I, by the time I was 18 years old, I had quit school when I was 17, started playing in bars, uh, running after the rock and roll dream, and that was just, I mean, now I'm drinking every night, doing drugs every night, chasing women every night, plus doing the other perverted stuff, you know, on the side. That would, I, I thought chasing women, this is two consenting adults, even though they're one night stands, I thought, well, that was straight, you know, that was being good, you know, because I'm not perpetrating somebody that's uh, uh, against someone. So by the time I was 18 years old, I started thinking, well, what's the purpose in life? What, you know, why am I here? What's, what's it all about? You know, and I started contemplating, well, if there isn't a God, if there isn't such a thing as eternal life, and there isn't a higher purpose for which to live, it ain't worth it, you know. I just this ain't this ain't happening for me, uh, and so I started contemplating suicide. I started thinking, you know, what if God won't come to me? And I'd pray, God, please, you know, uh, levitate that chair over there. I'd wait. Well, see, I, I knew there wasn't. You know, He ain't gonna do nothing. You know, and uh, I'd put these things out, and I and, and so I started thinking. Well, how would I do myself in? I didn't have a gun. I thought, well, if I took a car and drove it into an overpass, we had a little VW Bug, you know, that my parents owned that I drove all the time. I had a little 36 horsepower engine. It could really rev it up, you know. <laughs> but I had seen that thing when if I get down on a little bit of a downhill run, it could get up to about, well, the speedometer would be doing that somewhere between 80 and 85, 90, you know, so 85-ish, you know. And I thought, well, if I did that, and I hit in an overpass and hit one of those big concrete columns, that would squash me like a bug. And I'd think, man, what are you thinking about? That's crazy. Don't think that stuff. And I'd push it away. Then you'd come back. 
Now, I'd think on it a while. You know, I'd push it away. And this went on, I don't know, for a while, you know, two or three weeks or however long it was. And finally, it started getting the best of me. And one night, I was over at a friend's house, a singer that I worked with, an older guy, who was a seminary dropout, become rock and roll singer. And we got to arguing about God and the universe and whatever else. And I did, I would got mad. And I said, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to find out. I'm fine. I'm going through with all that. So I, I jumped out in that Volkswagen. I drank about a bottle of wine, which at that time would get me drunk. You know, later on, that wouldn't even wet my whistle. But I, so I'm plowed and I'm saying, I'm going for it. And I got on I-24 out here and started going wherever it is, east, south, whatever it is, toward Murfreesboro, that direction. And I finally found a place where we were going downhill for about a mile or so. And I said, well, this is it. This is, there's an, uh, there's an overpass, you know, this is cool. You know, this will work. And I get over there and, I, and when I started hitting some of those reflectors, you know, the little reflector things on the side of the road, I looked down and I had my seatbelt on. Well, what, you know, what, you know. It, <laughs> It was a, it was, it was a habit, you know. I mean, I just get in it, but I mean, even drunk, I mean, I had the seatbelt on. I thought, well, I'm trying to kill myself. I don't want safety belt on, you know. Which I think, I mean, I really believe that that was uh, the providence of God, you know. Perhaps an angel or somebody tapping me on the shoulder, take the seatbelt off, you know, and because I did, and I, I don't know why, in the midst of this, you know, suicide attempt, I, I even noticed that. But I took it off. And I ran straight into that thing. I mean, head first, right into it. I remember hitting it. It was the most strongest concussion I'd ever felt. And I was instantly unconscious. Just boom! Just as, I mean, and the next conscious moment I had, I'm opening my eyes and people are yelling at me, was there anybody else in the car? Was anybody, and, I, uh, and they were kind of coming at me like this, like on the films and stuff. It's got in and out. And, and I said, well, no, you know, and I tried to move there. Oh, don't get up. There's an ambulance on the way. And I looked down, there's blood everywhere, you know, and I felt like every bone in my body was broken. It felt that way, you know, and they took me to the hospital and the state trooper came in. He was an older guy covering the wreck. And he says, well, what happened? And I told him what I did. It's like I'd take a truth serum. Well, I went and drank a bottle of red ripple wine and decided I want to find out what the blank is going on. So I, I ran into that thing to kill myself. You'll see if there's a God. And he was like, whoa, dude, you know, hello. Uh, uh, he said, well, I don't really understand your thinking, son. Uh, and I, and uh, I, I can understand why he didn't understand my thing because it was, you know, I was out there, you know. And he said, well, he said, I'll tell you one thing. He was probably maybe in his 50s, something like that. I guess he'd been on the force for a while. He said, he said I, son, I'll tell you one thing. He said, I've never seen a wreck that bad that anybody's lived through the whole time I've been on the force, you know. He said, somebody's watching over you, son. Hmm. I was kind of in shock at that time. You know, I was kind of like, what did I just do? Why didn't I die? Now what? Now what's going on? You know what I mean? I was kind of, well, and I saw, and I was beat up. I didn't have a single, I did not have a broken bone. 
How does that work? I, w- I had a, co- a severe concussion. I had lacerations, bruises, abrasions. I was beat up to, to beat the band. I was all messed up, but I did not even have a fractured bone. Um, and I stayed at my parents' house for about two or three days. I mean, two or three weeks on crutches and couldn't walk around and start going, now what? What's up now? You know, what's the deal? And it appeared to me, you know, just out of logic and reason, there was no logical reason why I lived through that. And what that uh, state trooper said kind of made me think, well, maybe there is something else. Maybe there is God. You know, maybe... It wasn't my time to go. Maybe I shouldn't ought to do that anymore. You know what I mean? Maybe I should stick around a little bit. Maybe he's got something else in mind, you know, besides me splatting myself on the interstate, you know. And, okay, but who is he? Where is he? What does he want me to do? And I didn't figure that out, you know. But I just little by little decided, well, I'm not going to try to. So I went back to suicide on the stomach plan, drinking, taking drugs, acting out sexually, you know. But we won't do the quickie. We'll just keep going the way we're going. <clears throat> and um, that's what it is. So I was, I mean, this is all about what was it like, you know, what happened and <clears throat> what's it like now. This is part, what happened. I mean, it, it was just, my life was a train wreck. I mean, you know, this was, I was just 18 years old. I kept drinking, kept playing in bars, kept trying to get my life together. Wound up in, in the psych ward in, in Vanderbilt. Got put on Thorazine, doing the Thorazine shuffle, drooling and and that started messing with my liver. They put me on Elevil and Librium, and I stayed on that stuff for three years. Plus, that every street drug I get my hand on and drank every single day, <clears throat> driving around in my old '65 Ford truck. My mom had said later on, she said there was an angel was driving that truck for you. And that my, it was a, the word was out with my friends, do not get in the, the truck with Roy. He's an idiot. And he's drunk and he's stoned all day long, every day. I drive in the middle of the day, I drive down the road and the mirror would come out to where uh, uh, mailboxes are, you know. And I'd be middle of the day, bright sunshine today. Wham! And it would hit a mailbox and I'd be in the ditch going, and I would think I was at home in bed, asleep. I was in such a deep REM sleep or whatever. I thought I was at home in bed asleep. Man, I'm in the truck. I'm going to be a golly. And I mean, seriously, that, I mean, I was, you know, good grief. How did I survive that? I do not know. Three years I was doing that. And the more I kept doing it, I finally got a, a gig. I was a rock and roller. I finally got a gig playing. Uh, country music and go up to Canada in the middle of uh, the winter in January for about three months or so off the union board. I was going through a divorce. I'd gotten married, total disaster, Got was in the process of divorcing, wanted to go anywhere. Well, we can go to Canada. Okay, let's go. You know, Me and a rock and roll guitar player friend of mine went and played with this guy named uh, Johnny Hart who, you know, and it was a, it was the tour in the middle of nowhere and up in Saskatchewan in the middle of the winter. Just take me out of Nashville. Let me get, you know, here we go. And I mean, I've never been so cold in my life, you know, middle of the day, walk outside, sunshiny days, 40 below. Burr, you know, uh, fortunately we stayed in a motel that had the bar was downstairs. We played in, they had a restaurant. You didn't have to leave an hotel if you didn't want to, you know, and I didn't very often. Uh, 
And I stayed drunk. And by that time, I was on a Southern Comfort binge. And my shrink gave me two bottles of those Ellavilles and Libriums, because I'm going to be away maybe four months, you know. And, okay, well, here you go. You know, I'd already built up a tolerance for over two years for that stuff, and I wouldn't even count them anymore. I just pour out, oh, that's that nice-looking pile right there, and I'd just eat them, you know. Seriously. I'd had a, such a tolerance. That stuff was mind-numbing stuff. But I was used to them, and I just... Oh, one escapade, I'll just share this escapade, because it was just... It's a sad indication of what where we can get to where I got to was that one night I decided I was going to get really drunk. I mean, I got drunk every night, always, no question about it. But this night I decided after the gig, this is after I've been drinking during the gig, uh, I'm going to get me a bottle of Southern Comfort from the bar. Just put it on my tab. You know, I didn't care what it costs. Just give me a bottle. Give me a quart. We're going upstairs. We're going to party with some people. And I was pouring beer glasses full of uh, ice and just pouring straight Southern Comfort in there and just slugging it down. And last memory I had before I passed out was chasing some poor girl down the hallway, and she's running away from, get away from me. And I'm, come here, you know. Just, you know, out of it, just totally, you know, fortunately I was drunk enough, I passed out at, you know, I didn't catch her. She was faster than me. That's good. <laughs> you know, well, I woke up the next afternoon because you drink till the sun came up. And the next afternoon I woke up and I'm like, oh gosh, I got run over by two trucks last night. I mean, just, it, you know, I was hungover every day, but this was a big hangover because I was really, and I looked down and there was a little, about that much left in that quarter Southern Comfort sitting there. And, I got up. I think I made myself shower. Got to get ready for the gig tonight, you know. I'm, uh, I went in. I got my pills. That's a good pile. Okay, I ate some more pills. I'm still drunk, you know, from the night before. And I ate some more pills, and I finally I got dressed, you know, put on my little shirt and pants, sat down, and oh, man, oh gosh, I feel horrible. I got to have a little hair of the dog there just to knock the edge off, and I started <laughs> sipping on that Southern Comfort. Then those pills start kicking in. I get down there for the first set, and I start getting lost in the set. I mean, we're doing a show. You know, this is the first time I've done, like, shows, you know. We do a little, you know, a few dance numbers, and we bring on, you know, Johnny Hart, you know, dot recording artist from Nashville, Tennessee. Let's hear it for him. You know, blah, 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 blah. You know, and, you know, it wasn't just a garage band sitting around smoking and drinking on stage and stuff like that. You're supposed to be pretty, you know, together you know and i wasn't and i started getting lost i mean playing three chord songs i'd change key i'd change chords and i'm playing in that key you know i mean i mean remember you know we're playing bobby mcgee in the key of d when we go to the g chord the four chord that's the one chord i'm playing in g now I remember Johnny looked around at me. He was a real calm country boy, you know, that was even tempered. But he looked over at me like, what are you doing? You know, and I'm like, you know, I mean, I was losing my, I mean, I'd done, I'd played tripping. I'd played on heroin. I'd played drunk. I'd played in every kind of, so drunk I couldn't even look up sitting on the front of a stage. I got the SRs, the spinning rooms, and I could, without throwing up, I could, but I could, I could still play. You know what I mean? I still follow the song. This time I'm, my mind's just gone. I'm like, I don't even know what key I'm in. <clears throat> so he had the drummer, who was the band leader, have a talk with me on the break. Roy, what's wrong? What you doing? What's the matter? You know, eh, eh, you got to straighten up. You're going to be in a bus back to Nashville, you know, yada, yada. 
I said, yeah, man, I know, and I feel bad. He said, well, get something to eat. So I ordered some food, you know, from the restaurant there, and I ate some of it, and I felt worse. You know, it just, it wasn't helping, you know. It's just a, a, the accumulation of all that stuff together. I got up on the next set, and I'm starting to play, and we're going along, and I start, oh, I just go, start feeling faint. You know, I said, well, this ain't good. Uh, after this set's over, I got to go in the bathroom and splash cold water on my face, slap myself around, try to not. Then finally, I'm like, I ain't going to make it to the next set. You know what I mean? And it's not cool to run off stage right in the middle of a show. You know, I thought, but after this song's over, I'm going to have to go do that. Then I started going, uh-oh, I ain't going to make it to the end of this song. And I started picking my bass up, turned the volume off, and turned around to put it in my stand. Next thing I know, it's about two hours later, and they're pouring cold water on me. I had cold cocked right on the stage. They'd pick me up, drug me out. To unconscious, put me up in the hotel room, came back, tried to play for a while, came back and threw cold water on me and said, get him up. The singer was saying that to the guitar player friend of mine. He's your friend. You wake him up, you know. And then busted, he had busted the bottle, the Southern Comfort bottle. There's glass and there's ice and everything all over. Get up. You're going to play. You come down here and play in the last set. We've had some drunk Indian guy down here doesn't know a C chord from his rear end. You better get up. Yes, don't put any more cold water. Just I'm gonna get up. And I got up and put on some dry shirt and went down there. And then I got the real ride act read to me after the gig was over, you know. And I was in, and I was incapacitated. I was, it was sad, you know. I stayed, you know, there was a new band room, no drinking on, you know, until before the last set, you know, for everybody, right, you know, for me. Uh, and so I'd go get me, you know, four shots of Southern Comfort, uh, quadruple shots. I'd do two or three of those for the last set because I couldn't get too drunk. Okay. So let's, you know, enough of that. Uh, as we go along with the, I was in and out of nut wards. My life was not working very well, as you can tell from what I've told you so far. I would get to come to that conclusion myself. I'd get to the point I can't handle life. I would go back to a psych ward. I would, check myself in, they'd give me some pills, I'd talk about it, and I'd, think, I'd re- realize these people don't know what they're doing either. I better pull myself up by my bootstraps, get on out of here, and try to keep going. And so I would. I'd put a Band-Aid on my cancer, and I'd keep on, keep on trucking. And as it got worse, my sexual fantasies got darker. It went from being exhibitionist and so forth to start thinking of rape, torture, and murder. Very sick thinking. Uh, and, but I kept buy, buying that lot. Well, if I'm just thinking about it and fantasizing about it, if I'm not actually doing it, then that's wrong. You know, I mean, that's, you know, that's not hurting anybody. Well, yeah, it was. And it was hurting me and it was going to hurt other people. And, and I started realizing I'm going to start doing this stuff. And I got scared. You know, I got really scared. And fi- and I was drinking that much more because the solution of lust and drugs and alcohol was starting to not work anymore. The more I drank and the more I drugged and the more I lust I it was involved in, there was never enough. Never. When I got back to Nashville after being in Texas for about three years playing in a band and, and I just, I got where I was drunk all day every day. I mean, that, that was, that was my life in stadium bars chasing women. And no matter how much I indulged lust, drugs and alcohol, there was never enough. 
and the hole kept getting bigger. That God-shaped hole in me that was not getting filled, get bigger every time. And I just kept feeding it. Like I, Bill was talking about yesterday, I kept feeding the beast. That was There was no pleasure anymore in it. I didn't know what else to do. I was stuck. And finally, I got to a place where I, I had an epiphany. I've got to quit drinking or I am going to die. For real. Not just one of those times I quit for a couple of hours or a couple of days or a couple of weeks. I mean, I my life force is going to be snuffed out if I don't quit forever right now. And that's when I said, okay, now I can do this. You know, I got the willpower. If I got enough incentive, and this was enough incentive, I'm going to quit this. And that's just going to happen now. And I lasted a whole three days all by myself. I mean, I got me two bags of pot. You know what I mean? Because I've changed smoking marijuana and, you know, I've been playing in a bar one or, two, one or two of those days that I was playing this little bar in West Nashville and, nope, none for me. The waitress would come by to take our drink orders. No, none for me. And I had a little igloo cooler with V8 juice and some orange juice. Nope, I'm good. I quit drinking. I'm all right. Fourth day I woke up, I didn't think anything about I'm going to die. I quit. It's forever. I could not get my clothes on fast enough, get my car fast enough, and drive to a bar fast enough to start drinking. Not a thought about I'm going to, that I remember, that I can remember, you know, I mean, to this, not a thought about I'd quit drinking, I'm going to die, none of that. And I drank all day long, got home sometime that late afternoon, early evening, passed out, woke up, and it was about 1230 at night, and I went, oh my gosh, I got a missed last call. I got to get up and get dressed and go to the bar anywhere. And then it hit me. Oh, my God, I quit drinking. You know what I mean? I mean, I quit forever. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. And that's the, that's the first time I tasted powerlessness. That's when I knew I was powerless over alcohol. For real. And I was the most devastating feeling I'd ever had. I wanted to, I got down on my knees. Mr. I don't believe in God. I got down on my knees. God help me. And I called this girl I knew, and she said, well, my aunt went to Cumberland Heights, and she's been sober for four months. And a little light bulb went off my head. I said, that's it. I'm going to Cumberland Heights if I can. I called the next morning. They said, we got a room. Your insurance covers, pays it. Come on. Well, I was over at this girl's house. I said, well, I got to go by my aunt's house and pick up my stuff, you know, my guitar, my clothes. And they said, well, why don't you come on? We'll have somebody bring that stuff. I said, well, you know, I, no, I want to get my stuff. I don't go here without my stuff. Well, really, why don't you, you just, just come on up, drive on over here. We got a bed. You're ready to go. We're good. We'll have somebody pick up us. I said, look, I'm coming, but I'm going to go get my stuff. All right. Yeah. They know, you know, I didn't even know yet. I'm going to go get my stuff. I mean, I want my guitar. I don't go anywhere without my guitar. I wanted some clean underwear, whatnot, you know, change your clothes. So I go get my, pack up my car, and then it's okay, it's time to go to the, and I knew where Cumberland Heights was, that river road, been there, you know, been past the place, you know, I'm okay. Well, wait a minute, I'm going to go get the cure. Hmm. I have a last hurrah, I mean, really, if it's the, you know, if I'm never going to drink again, I might as well drink one more time, you know. <laughs> yeah, of course, you know, they knew that before I did, you know, boom. <laughs> Up to the bar, and I drank till I was stumbling. I almost could not get in my car. 
I was falling down in the parking lot. It's over on White Ridge Road. There was a Mexican resident there, had margaritas on tap. That was just what was on my mind. I drank those just all day long. And I, I was almost in a blackout, but I wasn't. I still remember it, you know. But I was almost that point where I wouldn't have remembered any of it. And somehow I didn't get a DUI. I didn't kill myself, didn't kill anybody else. Got actually showed up at, at Common Heights, walked in the front door. It was about 12 hours later, from 8 o'clock in the morning to 8 o'clock that night, when they said, come on now. I walked in. I told you I was going to be here. <laughs> I made it. I told you. You didn't believe me, did you? You know. Yeah, boy, I'm, yeah, here I am. <laughs> you know, yeah, okay, sit down, you know. And, you know, they detoxed me, and I first there heard a guy who some guys here might know him. Uh, well, for anonymity purposes, I call him Mo, in Mo H. He was a counselor there. He was my counselor. After about three days of detoxing, I went to group. And, and I didn't know what to think. Yeah, I, mean, I saw God in the steps up there. I went, oh, my gosh, I've been tricked off some religious thing, some church thing. I said, oh, gosh, where am I, what am I doing here? You know, I was very prejudiced against established religion because I just was. But he started talking to me, and I said, wait a minute, this guy's been down the further down the road as an alcoholic than I've been. And he'd been sober about 26 years. He wasn't a shrink. He wasn't preaching to me. Okay. And so I, I got, so what I did then was to, in, in succession, was I became an AA fanatic. Within six months or so of being sober, I realized this sexual stuff, maybe this is an addiction. Maybe I'm not just a pervert. Maybe I'm a sex addict. Maybe the 12 steps will work for that. What about that? So I thought, oh, I'll go start. A, I'll start a group. Then I'll start. You know, we'll call it Perverts Anonymous. That was the first thing that came to my mind. I'd call it PA. You know, because so I was a pervert and I wanted to get free. And you know, hey, that'll work. And so I started. But I thought this is going to be a daunting task. You know, how do I start a group like this? And I said, I need one other guy and a big book, and we're good to start. You know, so I went and talked to Mo. And asked him what he thought. And he said, well, wait a minute. I got some information here. And he pulled out and said, well, I got this pamphlet here. You might check this out. Sexaholics Anonymous at Simi Valley, California. Went, oh, God, thank you. Somebody else started one. I don't have to figure out how to make this work for a, for a sex addict. This is great. So I called it. My first meeting was Rory Kay and another guy on a conference call. He said, we're having a conference. And went out there to a conference. I said, well, he said, well, you're the only person that's contacted us from Nashville. So... Uh, if we get somebody else contacting us, we'll tell them to contact you. You can start a group. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. So I started advertising at 202 at the clubhouse where I went to AA meetings. And people laughed about it and, you know, mocked and all this stuff. And uh, one of the brothers that – there was one guy from Madison they sent me the name of. He came to one or two meetings, just me and him, in my apartment, you know. And there was another brother, Brother Harvey – I knew from 202, and he came up to me one day and said, Roy, are you serious about that stuff? I said, yeah, I'm dead serious. Or something to that extent, you know. It's been a few minutes since we did this. But he said, uh, I, I need that, man. He said, but I don't, I'm not ready yet. Maybe in three or four months or something I'll get back with it. I said, well, sure, whatever, you know. Very shortly thereafter, I can't remember how long it was, Brother Harvey, but, you know, a few days later he came back and said, okay, I'm ready. Where's the meeting? You know. <laughs> 
So here comes Harvey. The other guy moved out of town, him and his wife. So it was me and Harvey. And we was like, okay. And little by little, some people from 202 would start popping in and coming in. And I lasted six months as a single person, you know, staying dry, let's say. I was not sober. I was abstinent. And it was a ticking time bomb because I was still on willpower. I was trying to work the AA program with everything in me. I was trying to work the SA program with everything in me. I tried so hard. And I thought I I was trying to do what was, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to do it. Didn't have a sponsor. Didn't know how to, you know, I didn't know what to do. I just kept running, trying to run a little faster than my lust, you know. And it caught me. You know, after six months of abstinence, the meeting was getting bigger. We finally started meeting at, at Harvey's place because it wasn't good to be in an apartment. We started meeting at his his practice in his waiting room. His night set up just for a meeting. You know, I mean, you got chairs and couches in a circle, and more people started coming. And and then I I, I fell off. You know, I got in a relationship with a girl. Uh, the next day, I was again masturbating, I was back into fantasy, all that sick stuff started coming back. And I started to try to justify that and control it for about three or four months. Then I started drinking and drugging again. Uh, and the short story is of what happened then, all that darkness took over, you know. And I wound up committing a murder related to my sexual lust. And it was a horrible, horrible thing. And I turned, the next day I was so riddled with guilt and shame, I turned myself in, gave a full confession, and put me to death, please. I wanted them to kill me. Please kill me. Put me in the electric chair now. I was going to even sign a, uh, a waiver of my, uh, uh, appeals if they'd let me do that. My lawyer said, well, you're crazy. And, if you'll take, go ahead, they, they won't give you the death penalty, but it'll take 20-something years before they'll ever kill you. It said, why don't you just take this plea bargain, they're offering you life with the possibility of parole instead of death, then you can at least get out and get a job and stuff like that, have some kind of life in the penitentiary for 30 years or whatever, you know. Okay, whatever, fine. I did, so I did that, and my life was over as I knew it. And I, you know, I felt I lost all hope at that point. I lost all hope. I had no hope. I started at that point getting so desperate. And to me, this sounds crazy now, but to, I was so desperate. I actually started reading the Bible. You know, it's like that was the bottom of the barrel to me. <laughs> it was. I was like, well, I've, you know, I've tried everything else. You know, okay, well, okay, God, where are you at? You know, and he was there. And he drew me to himself within two years from the month for my, I, um, was locked up March of 85, then March of 87, I became a born again Christian. I had a dramatic conversion experience. It was wonderful. My life turned around. But, I hadn't had a drink of alcohol since then. It's been almost 33 years. I haven't done drugs other than when I was prescribed it for a particular medical purpose, and that was it. I've been clean and sober drugs and alcohol, but I could not get free from lust, no matter how dedicated I was. I mean, I was dedicated, still dedicated, 
still believe that's my foundation, that's my higher power. But for some reason, I could not get to that point of how do I get free from it? It was, you know, so eventually I started thinking, I miss those groups, man. I miss the 12 step groups. But I turned myself against when I got saved. I said, I don't want 12 steps. I don't need 12 steps. I got all I need right here. Well, the 12 steps reflects the same things that are, uh, incorporated in scripture. And I think they're eternal truths that are, Bill Wilson didn't come up with it. He, he did a great job of putting it together for alcoholics. You know, the Oxford group didn't originate it. It goes back. It goes back. It goes back. But here were these steps. And here was the, uh, the fellowship. I could not find an SA meeting in prison. They had Celebrate Recovery. They had Alcoholics Anonymous. They had Narcotics Anonymous. None of those talked about lust. I went to Celebrate Recovery for 12 years in prison. We didn't talk about lust. I didn't get free. I still could not get free. I'd met my wife, who's here with me tonight, praise God, uh, a year and a half after I got born again, she was in prison ministry. I know my time's getting short, so I'll just say she's the best thing that happened to me since the Lord came into my life. And she's with me today. Uh, shout out there. Hi, baby. <laughs> and so I knew I needed the 12 steps again. I knew I needed uh, the fellowship and I started thinking, if I make parole, this is going to be a two-edged sword. I have an opportunity to go to meetings. I have an opportunity to act out. And Internet porn had come into play since I had been locked up. They didn't even have cell phones or none of that stuff when I got locked up in 85. And I knew that would be like crack cocaine for me. And it, it was because I did. I started going to meetings. I finally got me a sponsor, and I kept relapsing. Every two days, every two weeks, I'm going out buying me a phone or a DVD, and I'm just eight hours, six, eight hours straight of just drinking kerosene spiritually. And I was so sick, and I'd go pray with my wife, and she supported me. And she told me, as much as it hurt, she said, I'm not going anywhere, and she did. And God didn't go anywhere either. I was the one that needed to change. I need what I needed. I didn't know it, but as I kept going and I kept reading essay literature, it said, "Get your sponsor and work the steps." I asked the sponsor I had at that time, "Would you help me to work the steps?" He said, "Well, he said, well, they got a steps class coming up in a couple of months or so. You might not try that out." I said, and I said, "Okay, thanks." And I said, "Well, in other words, he refused. You know, what well, wasn't able, whatever." I still love the guy today. He's a good friend of mine, but still, I said, well, I'm hemorrhaging now. I can't wait. I'm going to be dead or back in the penitentiary, you know, and I'll probably be on death row if I live. And I don't want to go there anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm sick of this. I can't stand this anymore because it was destroying my relationship with God. It was destroying my relationship with my wife. It was destroying my relationship with myself. And I finally... I called out to God on a deeper level than I ever had, and I finally got to a place of surrender that I'd never gotten to. I thought I'd hit bottom 35 years before that, when I went to SA, when Harvey and I started meeting. All along the line, I thought I had gotten to the end of myself. I sat on my couch and cried out to God, God, help me. I cannot do this by myself. 
God, help me. And it was like the throne of God was right there in my ceiling. And I was, everything in me cried out to God, help me. And I knew that conviction was, I knew I had to work the steps with the sponsor. And I knew this man here who I'd met when I'd go into SA in Nashville, when I'd come to visit my dad, he'd give me his phone number. I called him up and told him what was going on. And he said, I'll sponsor you. And that was God answering my prayer because we started right then to work on the steps. And by the grace of God, I've been sober for the last 17 months. And that is the grace of God to me. I know I'm a youngster in the Lord. I'm a youngster as a, as a recovering sexaholic. It took me a lot of years to get here. And I'm so grateful to be here. I'm so grateful for you guys. I can't, I found out that the, the three-legged stool analogy for me is this. I gotta have God. I can't just make up a higher power. I've gotta have the real God. I've gotta have this fellowship. I gotta have you guys. I can't do this by myself. I've got to have these steps, these principles as a part of my life or I cannot stay sober. I tried it with one leg, two legs and different legs. I got to have all three. And with it, it's real. Once I got to that place of surrender, I stopped fighting it. I start surrendering to him and praying. And he has given me freedom from the compulsion. I don't have to fight it. I didn't know how to do not fight it. I don't know how to get that surrender. It's better caught than taught, I guess. You know, it just, it happened. It just, I'm a hardhead. Somehow I was so determined, some part of me deep down inside was still going, I can beat this, you know. I can't. It beats me every time. But thank God he can beat this and does beat this. Uh, one guy, I'll say this last thing here. There was a fellow, I go in the back in the prison. That's my heart of my my ministry is going back into the prison. I do it a couple times a week. I live right next to the prison I spent 32 years in, uh, three miles away from it. And I love going back in and be with my brothers and encouragement them. And I'll tell them about lust from time to time. We don't have any meetings like that, but we, you know, I go in for, you know, 12 step meetings and I'll tell them about it. I started working the steps for lust and it works finally. Uh, and I was telling this one guy about it. He asked in a meeting about what the essays, sobriety definition was and he looked at me and said man that's impossible i said it is i said but with god all things are possible thank you good night I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.